We are reading um, a number of sermons in the book of Acts as we walk through this early generation of the church and see the, the preaching of God's word. And much of what we see in the book of Acts, much of the preaching is rooted in the Old Testament. And, and for obvious reasons, they, they didn't yet have the New Testament. The, the gospels, the, the story of the life of Jesus Christ was still being passed down orally. It was still being repeated and recited orally and ultimately would be put in written form in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and John. And then the life of Jesus Christ as it's exposed then in the church, in the letters to the churches, those, those churches are still in the process of being born. We're seeing Paul reaching the churches in the region of Galatia. And so the, the churches that re, uh, receive those New Testament letters, they are just in their early stages and then the closing books of the New Testament are largely written in the second half of the first century. And so they are still, still years to come. This is still a generation or two after the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And so the book of Acts, dealing primarily with that first generation of Christians, is, is where we are. And this morning we're back in chapter 13. We looked at kind of a broad sweep of 13 and 14 last week. We're back in chapter 13 this week. And this is... This is unfolding at about 15, 16, 17 years after that death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, this period that we're in here. Uh, the audience, obviously, for the majority of these early sermons is a Jewish audience. It is those who had been trained and equipped from the Old Testament to anticipate the coming of a, of a Savior, the coming of the Messiah. And so they are the ones who who Paul typically targets, and Peter as well, primarily because they, they believe in that one true creator God. They have some sense of anticipation of Messiah, and so they are able to come and now preach and say, here he is. We, we want to now unfold to you how this is fulfilled in Jesus. So we are in Acts chapter 13. I, I would suggest to you that much of the preaching of that first generation, when it is Primarily to Jewish audiences, we've already seen contact and salvation of Gentiles, but still a lot of what's happening, a lot of Paul's missionary journeys are, are keying in on the synagogues first and foremost and going first to the Jewish audience, that, that much of it has two goals in mind in the preaching. One is to, to take them back to the Old Testament remind them, show them the prophecies and the promises in the Old Testament, go back and, and show them, remember, this is what the prophets said, this was the truth that God revealed, and then secondly, to show them that it is in Jesus that these things are fulfilled. And so that, that sort of twin purpose comes through here in Acts chapter 13 as, as Paul preaches to say, you know this, you read it, you've heard these promises, I'm here to tell you that in Jesus of Nazareth, these things have been fulfilled Perfectly. The late James Boyce, who faithfully preached God's word in Philadelphia for the better part of three decades, wrote this in his commentary in the book of Acts. And I think this is just a very helpful quote for setting us up in what we're going to see this morning. Christianity is not just a philosophy or a set of ethics, though it involves these things. Essentially, Christianity is a proclamation of facts that concern what God has done. That is why Christianity is not malleable. It, it, it cannot be reshaped. Sometimes people try to remake Christianity, thinking a new version might be more acceptable to our contemporaries, but this does not work. And the reason it does not work is that whether we like it or not, Christianity constantly brings us up against the facts. Rather than trying to change them, we have to learn first to conform our thinking and conduct to these facts, and second, 
to proclaim not our own ideas, but these very facts to other people. That is what, what we're going to see Paul do. That's what you and I, I think, are going to be exhorted to do today, and that is to communicate to people these truths, these things that stand as facts that, that both were promised in the Old Testament and are now fulfilled in Jesus. And so much of the preaching of, of the book of Acts is the apostles, the ones who are sent forth by Jesus, and they are proclaiming these truths, reminding people God made these promises, and in Jesus they are fulfilled. That, that's crucial then to us to then remind us that the coming of Jesus, and, and when we speak of the coming, his perfect life, his death, and his resurrection was not some unexpected plot twist in God's plan. It was not something that, that, that somehow people who, who look at the Old Testament and the New think that, well, this, this Jesus here is different from this God of the Old Testament. There, there doesn't seem to be consistency. What we see in Acts is it's very clear that the Old Testament is speaking of this one Jesus, of this coming Savior, and we have now seen him and we are witness to him. There is a consistent thread from Genesis to Revelation of, of redemption. It revolves around a holy God and the rebellious people that he has created and his plan to redeem them, to, to save them, to rescue them from their sin. And so God establishes this eternal plan to establish his kingdom with people that he will take from among those rebellious sinners and rescue and forgive and, and, and purchase as his very own. That storyline is from beginning to end. We go all the way back to Genesis chapter 3 and man's fall in, in sin, and already the promise is made of a coming redeemer, of a need for someone who will now defeat this enemy of, of sin and death. And so that, that promise begins early, and preaching in Acts is to say, praise God, it has been fulfilled. The, the, the truth has been fulfilled and lived out in the person of Jesus and in his life and death and resurrection. That's why this preaching is so important, because it's showing us that at the very start of the Christian church, at the beginning days of, of Christianity 2,000 years ago, what was taught then is what we, we still preach and believe, and that is that God promised this, Jesus fulfilled it, and we are now proclaiming to you Jesus Christ crucified and risen, and that all must believe in him in order to be saved. And that's where Paul will take this sermon, not simply the statement of those two facts, promises and fulfillment, but then the exhortation that now you must receive this, you must believe this in order to be saved, and you would be foolish to reject it. There's no, there's no vagary, there's no gray areas, there's no room for rewriting the truth of, of biblical Christianity. As Galatians 1 says, there is no other gospel. There is God's gospel, and it is the, the story of Jesus Christ that fulfills the Old Testament promises. There is no hope for people apart from Jesus Christ. There is no hope to, to somehow earn God's approval in some way by, by works, by obedience, by somehow good outweighing bad. Scripture's abundantly clear that we are sinners who are either saved by trusting fully in Jesus Christ, or we are then bound to God's law. And the only, the only way of keeping that is perfect obedience, which none of us can do, and therefore we are condemned. That is the exclusive nature of the gospel. And that's why we'll see today, Paul say, you must, you must see these promises, you must believe this fulfillment, and you must respond 
to it. Otherwise, you stand there, as he will use the word at the end from the book of Habakkuk, you stand there like a scoffer who, who dares to look at the Old Testament history and see the works of God and, and dismiss it and, and reject it. And he's urging them not to do that. All right, last week we, we kind of did the broad sweep over 13 and 14, just looked at the travels of Paul and Barnabas on this first missionary journey, uh, the hardships that they endured, the lessons that were learned over the course of those, those hardships and that suffering. Today I just want to zero in on one particular sermon, and this is the sermon in Pisidian Antioch. This is the first, Luke's first record of a sermon by Paul. There, there certainly was other teaching. We know that back in Antioch in Syria, he is there and helping to establish the church. So he is, he's certainly been preaching. This is the first time in Acts, though, we get uh, the full force of a sermon from Paul as he's preaching in a synagogue. We've read um, Peter's sermon in Acts chapter 2. We've seen Stephen's sermon in Acts chapter 8. If you remember both of those, are, are laced with Old Testament scriptures. They're, they're bringing these promises back to bear. And so now we're going to see Paul in Pisidian Antioch. Uh, Antioch was a, a common city name back in, in the first century. And so that's why we speak of Antioch in Syria, Antioch in Pisidia. You see the Antioch in Syria on the top right, the Antioch where this story is taking place is on the far left to the west there in, in a mountain, mountainous region. Antioch was common, like like Springfield would be, you know, to us, Massachusetts and Ohio and Virginia and Illinois, and there's all these Springfields all around. So it was with Antioch. It was a name that was common back in that day. This city in particular is an important city in the sense that it is a governing area for the, the, the region of southern Galatia. It is where the, the, the main military outpost is for that region. Uh, it, it is not unusual that we say this over and over again about these cities that Paul goes to, that they are important cities because it is clearly part of his missionary effort to go to the, the hubs, the central places, to proclaim the gospel and, and see it work out from there. As in fact, when he speaks to the Thessalonians about their influence in Macedonia and beyond, as they preach there, the gospel then spreads from there. So he goes to another important city. Uh, the city in Antioch is 3,600 feet above sea level. It's about a 100-mile trip from where they are down in Perga, and so it is a difficult journey. It is a mountainous journey. Um, it, it's part of the reason when we talked last week about John Mark having abandoned there at Perga, uh, whether this enters into it, the, the, the fact that they are going on this journey up to Pisidian Antioch. Um, it, it's going to be treacherous and difficult. It is a notoriously barren area in terms of travel, and so crime and those sorts of things along the road are all possible, and so this is a difficult trip. They get there, Acts 13, they arrive in the Jewish synagogue. Typical Sabbath service would be reading from the law, Genesis through Deuteronomy, and a reading from the, the Old Testament prophets. And then various men in the body would be asked to stand up and give expositions on, on what has been read, to, to, to speak in some way on, on, on what has been read that morning. And so Paul, as a visiting rabbi, he's there, they have read, and he is given the opportunity to speak. And so if you pick up with me in Acts 13, verse 15, it says, after the reading from the law and the prophets, the rulers of the synagogue sent a message to them, that being Paul and Barnabas, saying, brothers, if you have any word of encouragement for the people, say it. So Paul stood up, motioning with his hand, and said, men of Israel, and you who fear God, listen. The God of this people Israel chose our fathers and made the people great during their stay in the land of Egypt. And with uplifted arm, he led them out of it. 
And for about 40 years, he put up with them in the wilderness. And after destroying seven nations in the land of Canaan, he gave them their land as an inheritance. All this took about 450 years. And after that, he gave them judges until Samuel the prophet. Then they asked for a king, and God gave them Saul, the son of Kish, a man of the tribe of Benjamin, for 40 years. And when he had removed him, he raised up David to be their king of whom he testified and said, I have found in David, the son of Jesse, a man after my heart who will do all of my will. Stop there. There are three main parts to, to, to Paul's sermon here. And we're in the middle right here, stopping here in the middle of this first part. Each of them begins, you can sort of identify them because there's some sort of salutation, some sort of greeting where he says brothers or Israelites, something that sort of sets apart that portion of the sermon. And so this one begins back in verse 16, men of Israel and you who fear God, listen. He's telling us that in the audience is the obvious. There are Jews there because it's the synagogue. But the fact that he says, you who fear God, distinguishes from the Jews. So clearly there are some Gentiles in the audience. There are those from Pisidian Antioch who are interested in this God of the Jews, who are starting to maybe believe in him in some way. They're coming to synagogue services, and so they are gathered there. And Paul then launches into this sermon. He calls their attention and says, listen. And the first thing he does is sort of walk through a, a, a brief survey of Israel's early history as seen from the vantage point of heaven. In, in other words, what he's, what he's doing here is saying, this is what God did. You and I know the stories about Egypt and Saul and David and Samuel. We know, we know all these stories. I, I want us to think, though, from the perspective of this is what God did. This is how God is directing these things. This is how God was sovereign in all of these things. It was, and, and so he just goes through this, God as the primary actor. It was God who chose Abraham and his descendants to, to be his people. God who directs Abraham from Ur. It was God who caused the line of Jacob to, to grow exponentially while in captivity in the land of Egypt, to explode into this nation of people. It was God who then orchestrated the exodus from out of Egypt, who rescued his people and delivered them from out of it. It was God, he says, who then was patient with his people, even as they rebelled in the wilderness, even as God is feeding them and leading them and providing, they are rebelling and God is showing his patience and providing for them. It was God, he says, who opened the land before them. He promised them this land flowing of milk and honey, and God clears out the enemies before them and gives them this land to inherit. It was God who gave them leaders. When they asked for leaders, they looked at the nations around them. It was God who provided judges and leaders. And ultimately, when they said, we want a king, who gave them Saul? And then finally, he says, it was God, verse 22, who raised up David to be their king. And he describes then God describing David as a man after God's own heart. His, his point is, you, you know the history, but I just want to make sure we're all on the same page here, that we all agree that it was God who did this. It was our God who chose and carried and led and, and appointed and raised up. It was God who did this. Then he gets to David. This is where he, he sort of slows down at this point, because all of this, all of this history, all of this unfolding of God's sovereign work in Israel's history to choose a people for his own reaches its Old Testament zenith in the reign of David. This is, the, this is the high point of the Old Testament. It is the rule of, of David and the establishment then of, of God's people there in Jerusalem. This is now when the attention really begins to shift 
to the Messiah, to the line of David, to what is still to come. And so he gets to David, and that's sort of the place at which he pauses. Up to this point, Paul's preaching in Antioch has been what we might characterize as sort of an Old Testament gospel in the sense that it is Old Testament good news. It is, it, it is Paul saying, look at what God has done. And, and, and it begins in much the same way our story begins when Ephesians 1 tells us God in eternity past chose us to be his own. This story begins with God choosing Israel to be his own. This is where their, their rescue begins. It is with God in his kindness and his grace choosing this people sovereignly to be his own and then pouring out his grace on them in order to save them. The Israelites did not earn God's favor. Abraham was, did not earn it because he was just this unique human being. God sovereignly chose him. He called Abraham out of Ur. He moved Abraham to a land that he had never seen before, this, this promised land, where God then strengthened Abraham to believe God's incredible promise that, that childless Abraham and Sarah would become the parents of a, a nation of people greater than the stars in the sky. God, God enables Abraham to believe that promise that he will be blessed and multiplied. It is all of God. God's sovereignty in this, in, in, in not only our salvation, but in this sort of Old Testament good news, is, is almost preeminently seen then in the raising up of David, in, in the choosing of David to be king. We know the story, Samuel the prophet is sent to this town of Bethlehem, go to the house of Jesse, and from among his sons, you will anoint a king. And if you remember the story, Samuel goes to Jesse and says, bring your sons. We're going we're gonna to appoint a king here. God has chosen a king from among this line. And of course, the first son is tall and has the stature and the appearance. And scripture tells us that, that Samuel sees him and is sure that this is a king. This is the kind of young man who God has chosen. And God says, no, I reject him. And, and the story is described to us that seven sons are brought by Samuel. One by one, Jesse brings a son before Samuel, and one by one, Samuel says, nope, God has rejected this one. Nope, this is not the one. And after the seven, Samuel says to Jesse, are there any others? And Jesse says, well, yeah, I mean, there's the youngest. He's out shepherding out in the pasture. He's the one taking care of the sheep. I mean, he's, he's the youngest one. You, you never, in... in, in Jewish thinking at this point of time go with the youngest of the group, the one who is least noticed, who's doing the menial task. And Samuel says, send him. And in comes David, and he becomes God's king, the man after God's own heart. That is, that is all meant to remind us again that here is God confounding man. Here is man saying, it, it must be this tall handsome, older one, not the shepherd boy, but God raised him up. That's the language that he uses in verse 22. I just want you to think on that language because he's going to use it again, that he raised up David to be their king. All right, verse 23, this first part of the sermon continues. Of this man's offspring, he's talking about David now, of his offspring, God has brought to Israel a savior, Jesus, as he promised. Before his coming... John had proclaimed a baptism of repentance to all the people of Israel. And as John was finishing his course, he said, What do you suppose that I am? I am not he. No, but behold, after me is coming the sandals of whose feet I am not worthy to untie. All right, there's the, the end of the first part of, of 
Paul's sermon. Paul tells the Antioch synagogue, all this history, God's sovereign, he promises, they remember this, 2 Samuel 7, there will come an offspring from David who will have an everlasting throne. There's all this anticipation, and now Paul drops the bomb in the sermon, which is, he is Jesus. When he says this in verse 23, of this man's offspring of David's, God has brought to Israel a savior, Jesus, as he promised. The fulfillment of the promises we have seen. And he, he shifts a bit and he, he mentions the man who is really the last of the Old Testament prophets. We're introduced to John the baptizer in the Gospels in the New Testament, but he's really the last of the, the Old Testament voices, the last of the ones saying, anticipate the coming of a Savior. John's message is, I'm not he, I've come to prepare the way, but, but I tell you, he's coming imminently. Once I move along, he's coming right behind me, and this is the one you've been waiting for. This is the Savior. He will now, Paul will now explain, this is the one you need to know. Remember all the promises. They're fulfilled in Jesus, and let me show you how they're fulfilled. Verse 26, brothers, sons of the family of Abraham and those among you who fear God, to us has been sent the message of this salvation. For those who live in Jerusalem and their rulers, because they did not recognize him nor understand the utterances of the prophets, which are read every Sabbath, fulfilled them by condemning him. And though they found in him no guilt worthy of death, they asked Pilate to have him executed. And when they had carried out all that was written of him, they took him down from the tree and laid him in a tomb. All right. Second part of the sermon starts with another salutation. Men of Israel was the first one, you who fear God. And listen, this time it's brothers, sons of the family of Abraham, fellow Jews. And again, you who fear God, those among you who fear God, so Jews, Gentiles, you need to listen to this. This is how the, the promise is fulfilled. This is now recent history. We've talked about the Old Testament promises. This is stuff you've heard about in your lifetime that, that happened 15, 16 years ago, and you've, you've maybe picked up pieces of this, that God's promise of a Savior is delivered in Jesus Christ. He says here to us, verse 26, to us has been sent the message of this salvation. This is a key phrase. He's going to touch on explaining this salvation when he gets to the, the, the next part. But he's making it clear that this Messiah is a Savior. This one who is coming is, is uniquely qualified, and his work will be to save us. And so to us has come this message of this Savior. He's already identified him in verse 23. He's Jesus. He's that rabbi from Nazareth that you have heard and maybe picked up little bits and pieces about. It's all accomplished in Jesus. Interesting shift now in his actors, his primary actors. If you recall at the beginning of this, it was all about God. God chose, God did, God led, God worked, God raised up. Then it was the, the proclamation of the coming of Jesus through John the baptizer. Now, he says, now let's, let's look at the works of those in Jerusalem. There were religious leaders a number of years ago in Jerusalem, Jews and others who, who read the prophets in the synagogue, just like we're doing. Every Sabbath, they, they read these things, and yet they failed to understand what the prophets promised. Because if they had, they would have recognized when Jesus was in their midst. If they had understood 
what they had read, they would have looked at Jesus and said, this is it. But instead, they rejected him. They despised Jesus. They handed Jesus over to the Roman governor, and for, for no reason at all other than their hatred of him, they asked him to condemn Jesus to death, to execute him. He is innocent of any wrongdoing. And so he says, they, that being the Jews and the Romans, ultimately carried out what was written in the prophets about the rejection of the Savior. They did what ultimately God had designed in his plan of redemption. They carried it out. This, this should bring back echoes of Peter's sermon in chapter 2 when he says Jesus was delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God and was crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God's sovereign. They are fulfilling God's plan and his predetermined will, but, but they are responsible completely for what they have done. It is evil men who execute Jesus. And so what he's, what he's saying here is the crucifixion, the rejection of the Messiah, Isaiah 53, the despising of the Messiah, was all foretold in the prophets. This is what God said and what God designed that was carried out in Jerusalem when they killed Jesus, for which they are fully responsible. But he doesn't stop there. Verse 30 of Acts 13. But God raised him from the dead. And for many days he appeared to those who had come up with him from Galilee to Jerusalem, who are now his witnesses to the people. And we bring you the good news that what God promised to the fathers, this he has fulfilled to us, their children, by raising Jesus, as also it is written in the second Psalm, you are my son, today I have begotten you. And as for the fact that he raised him from the dead, no more to return to corruption. He has spoken in this way. Another Old Testament quote. I will give you the holy and sure blessings of David. Therefore, he says also in another psalm, you will not let your holy one see corruption. For David, after he had served the purpose of God in his own generation, fell asleep and was laid with his fathers and saw corruption. But he whom God raised up did not see corruption. For some of us, by the way, Paul's statement in, in verse 35 is sort of the license for when we struggle in our memorization. He said it in another psalm. He doesn't specify. Psalm 16 is the one, but you and I know that experience when we're quoting from memory. He said it in, you know, and we can sort of generally get there. But the key in all this is verses 32 and 33. We bring you the good news. We bring you the gospel that what God promised to the fathers, he has fulfilled to us, the children, by raising Jesus. There's the promise of the coming Savior and his death and resurrection from the prophets, and it is fulfilled in the resurrection of Jesus Christ, and he has been seen raised. There's the turning point in the sermon. But God raised Jesus from the dead. There's that term raised again. Same one that he used back in, remember verse 22, when it says he raised up David to be the king. Here's that same language again. Despite, despite all of man's objections, all of man's opposition, all of man's ways of trying to hinder the work of God, all of man's sense that, no, David, the shepherd boy, he couldn't possibly be king. God raised him up. God did it. Despite man's best efforts to silence Jesus of Nazareth and to put him to death and to put the stone in front of the tomb, God raised him up. God rescues. 
Jesus. God delivers Jesus, I should say, from out of the tomb. Rescue is probably not a good word to use there, but he, he raises him out of the tomb. Without the resurrection of Jesus from the dead, there is no good news. We're, we're stopped. If, if, if not for but God raised Jesus from the dead, this is a story that ends without any hope because as 1 Corinthians 15 would say to us, if Christ has not been raised, then you are in your sins. You are still dead in your sins. You are still captive to the law and condemned before a holy God. And, and so Paul now, just to be abundantly clear, has said, prophets foretold, coming of a Savior, one who would die, one who would suffer, one who would be rejected. He also wants it clear that the prophets foretold the resurrection of Jesus Christ, that this also is God's plan. And so he quotes back to back to back three parts of the Old Testament to make it clear that the resurrection is the fulfillment of God's promises. Psalm 2 verse 7 is the first one. Psalm 2 is all about the coming Messiah. When that psalm is first delivered within its historical context, it looks largely like it is speaking about David and his kingdom, but there are elements as you read Psalm 2 that clearly cannot be fulfilled by a man, an ordinary man like David. There's, there's more to it. Psalm 2 is clearly pointing to the Messiah because what it describes in Psalm 2 is God raising up this one who would be rejected. The, the nations, the kings, the rulers would rage against him. They would try to oppose him. They would try to stop him. And yet Psalm 2 verse 4 says God, God laughs in heaven at their efforts to try to stop his plan. And so here then verse 7, this is the one who he gives the throne to. So this is not, it's, it's David in a preliminary sense at the time of the, the giving of Psalm 2, but it's pointing to someone else. It's clearly pointing ahead to a king who will now reign on God's throne, and there will be no stopping this one. The ultimate fulfillment of Psalm 2 is Jesus. And when it says that you are my son and today I've begotten you in Psalm 2-7, people get caught up on that word begotten as if Jesus suddenly became the son of God, is, is suddenly born or comes on the scene in some way. That, that, that's not what he's saying here. When, when Paul applies this in Acts 13, Remember what the context is. It's the resurrection. It's all about the resurrection now of Christ and what the resurrection proves and vindicates. And so what he's saying here, today I have begotten you, is that Jesus, rising from the grave, vindicates him as the Son of God. Had Jesus been crucified and remained in the tomb... He would have been just another religious zealot, just another ordinary man who came and, and, and did stuff and, and got people's attention, but then was gone. And that was the end. The fact that he is raised from the tomb now declares him to be the son of God in power. He, he, it, there is no mistaking the fact that this risen one, this Jesus, is the son of God. And the resurrection proves that. Second Old Testament reference in verse 34, he's drawing on Isaiah 55. In Isaiah 55, the prophet is, is going back to the covenant that David had with God in, in 2 Samuel 7. And in that covenant, God said to David that after David, he would raise up an offspring and establish that son's throne forever. We know Solomon followed David. Solomon did not live forever. In fact, after Solomon, the kingdom is it is dismantled in large part, at least divided at that point. And yet the promise to David was that I will establish your throne forever. 
It is the blessing of an everlasting kingdom sometime after David's death. And, and what Paul is saying here in Acts 13 is that's happened. The resurrection of Jesus Christ is the establishment of God's eternal kingdom. By his resurrection, Jesus inherits the blessings and the promises and, and, and takes the throne now. He fulfills the Davidic covenant. And then the last reference, as Paul says in another psalm, is Psalm 1610. It's a phrase Peter also cites in Acts 2 when he speaks about the body decaying. You remember Peter said in Acts 2, we know David died. For as great a man as David was, he died and he was laid with his fathers. He was put in a tomb and his body has suffered decay, just like all bodies do ultimately in, in, in the grave. They're all subject to corruption, but not God's Messiah. The Son of God was buried. He was dead. He was crucified, but he was risen without corruption and without decay in a glorified body. And so Paul has essentially taken them back and said, here's, here's the Old Testament promises. Here's what it looked forward to. Here's how it was fulfilled. I'm telling you, Jesus is the one, and we have seen him alive. He has witnesses that have seen him risen. And so that's when he then turns to the last part of his sermon, which is this exhortation. Verse 38, let it be known to you, therefore, brothers, that through this man, forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. And by him, everyone who believes is freed from everything from which you could not be freed by the law of Moses. Beware, therefore, lest what is said in the prophets should come about. And he quotes Habakkuk, look, you scoffers. Be astounded and perish, for I am doing a work in your days, a work that you will not believe, even if one tells it to you. Then as they went out in Antioch, the people begged that these things might be told them the next Sabbath. And after the meeting of the synagogue broke up, many Jews and devout converts to Judaism followed Paul and Barnabas, who, as they spoke with them, urged them to continue in the grace of God. One last Old Testament quotation. Paul now says to his audience, all right, this is not just a history lesson. This is not just current events about who this Jesus was and sort of filling in the story and, and telling you news about who Jesus was. This is something to which you must respond. You've heard the history. You've heard the promises. They've been fulfilled in Jesus Christ, especially in his resurrection. And so therefore, you must believe. And this is when he gives the warning that if you reject this, you will be like a scoffer before God. It is as if you are standing before God, shaking your fist, saying, I don't believe you. I know better. I reject what you say. This, this last portion of this sermon, this is, the, this is the stumbling block. This is the chief obstacle for the audience at this point. Because if we remember historically, this, the desire for a Messiah has been there. The belief that this, this great leader would come has, has been there. But first century Jews had a lot of the same wrong presuppositions about the purpose of Jesus coming that people do today. And that is that we need a Messiah to come and change our circumstances. We need a Messiah to come and to, to make life better and to rescue us and to give us military victories and to take us from being this oppressed people into people who are now set free and self-ruling. And, and that same sort of language comes into today, which is, you know, that, 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 I, I, this is what I actually need. It, it, and, and Paul says, no, the issue here is forgiveness of sins. Because the, the first century Jews, 
had the same logic that a lot of people do today. If, if you're going to start talking about my sin and my obedience, well, I, I know what I'm supposed to do there. I'm supposed to keep the law. And if I just keep the law, then, then I'm okay, right? Then that, that's what God, that's the basis on which he approves me. If I, just, if I can just be better at obeying God's law, then somehow he will justify me and, and, and accept me, and, and I will be in his kingdom. And this is where the gospel says, no, no. There is no performance here by which you can be made acceptable to God on, on your own. You, you cannot earn this. No one is justified by works. No one is sinless except Jesus. In the absence of perfect obedience, you need a perfect sacrifice for your sins. You don't have perfect obedience, and so you need the sacrifice. And so that's when, when they get to the Savior piece. Yeah, sure, we want a Savior to save us from our circumstances. And Paul's saying, no, it is forgiveness of sins that he has come to bring. What you, what you need is not a change in circumstances. You need a Savior who will forgive you, who will provide the means by which you can stand before God. And the greatest need, which is the removal of the guilt of your sin, will be satisfied before God. That's what stands between you. You need forgiveness, not a change in circumstances. The, the resurrection of Jesus Christ is absolutely crucial. Because what it confirms to us is that his perfect sacrifice for sins was acceptable to the Father. And therefore, God raises him from the dead. And those, as, as Paul now preaches, those who turn and believe, who trust in Jesus Christ, are saved. They are saved from their sins, and they are forgiven, and they have new life in Christ, and they are, they are rescued, and they are no longer in bondage to the law. They're no longer in that place of, how do I keep the law when I can't keep the law, and the law only provokes me to want to sin more? We have forgiveness. We have life in Christ. We have the fulfillment of the promises. And Paul is saying, now you must turn and believe in Jesus. You must embrace him. Because if you do not, there is judgment coming. And that's when he quotes the book of Habakkuk. And Habakkuk begins with, everything's a mess. Man is carrying on in evil. It can't go on this way indefinitely, right, God? And God says, no. Look, scoffers, there is coming a day of judgment. and You better warn them that judgment is coming. And that's what Paul recites here. You, you cannot reject this because ultimately you are rejecting God and the salvation he is offering you in Jesus Christ. In Habakkuk's day, it's 600 years earlier. The prophet Habakkuk is, is, is saying God is looking upon man's injustice and his evil and his strife and his unlove of other people and his unwillingness to serve others. And so God sent the warning through Habakkuk, don't be a scoffer. You better repent and turn back to God. And Paul now recites that in his sermon and says, don't be like one of them. I have preached the truth to you. I have told you a set of facts that God promised and that Jesus fulfilled, and you must believe them. The promise, the fulfillment, and the exhortation. Let me just in closing, I, I want to suggest to you two things for us who are believers in Jesus Christ. If you're saying, amen, I'm with you on all this. I believe this. All right. Our task is, is to go from here and be like Paul, and that is to proclaim the gospel. And I, and I would suggest to you this sermon is a lesson in at least two things we need to keep in mind as we proclaim the gospel. First one, is this 
should remind us again to rely on the truth and authority of God's word. To stand firmly on God's word, to proclaim the gospel, we must stand on the authority of God's truth. It is his truth. It is his gospel. It is his words. It is the power of God for the salvation of all who believe, Romans 1 tells us. The gospel, God's word, is where the authority rests, and you and I need to know it and use it. We are in a culture that surrounds us, that, that tells us that, that the governing rule in life is feelings and desires and whatever is currently trending and whatever all of my, my friends say and whatever the latest slogans are in social media and as believers in Jesus Christ, we have got to be different. We must believe and hold to the authority of God's word in, in, in all things and especially, of course, the gospel in believing that what God's word says is true. That's why, that's why Paul's whole message here is, I'm, I'm not coming to bring you something that I've made up. You've had these wild teachers who come through with all of these philosophies. I'm just here to, to remind you of everything you've already read in God's word and to tell you that by God's grace, it's been fulfilled in Jesus Christ. So I, I'm just reciting what God has done. And God keeps his word and he is to be obeyed. And the gospel is God's gospel and there is no other. And the world around us needs to hear about the promises that God has made and fulfilled. And we need to know and speak his truth. And so my, my urging to you is if, is, is if you don't already have some in mind, some means of going to scripture, of, of, of quoting from scripture um, about God's creation and man's sin and man's need of a savior and the provision of Jesus Christ and his death and resurrection, then, then you begin to study those things and commit those things because when we speak to people, that's the authority on which we stand because if we don't, we're going to be captured by slogans and, and, and catchy phrases and we'll water down the truth to, to just God, God just loves and, and it's all about kindness and, and good deeds and everybody being nice to one another when the gospel is about a creator and his rebellious people and his plan to redeem those people. That's where we stand on the authority of God's word. And second, if we do that, then we should be constantly pointing to Jesus Christ. The heart of, of Paul's sermon in Antioch is, is that the Old Testament has this clear and discernible direction to it. It is pointing to the need for a savior. It is telling you that all of the sacrifices of bulls and goats and lambs will not satisfy ultimately the wrath of God, that there needs to be a perfect sacrifice, and that is Jesus. And so it, it just keeps pointing and pointing to Jesus. You and I, by our lives and our words, need to stand on the authority of God's word, Amen. and we need to keep pointing to Jesus. We need to keep showing people that our hope is in Jesus. Our life is in Jesus. We are nothing apart from Jesus. That what we have and what blessing we hold and, and what forgiveness we experience and what joy we display in circumstances is not because we are somehow uniquely special people. It is because of Jesus having poured his grace out on us and saved us. Our place is to stand firm on truth and point to Jesus. Tell them that that's what they need. God has created, man has rebelled, and you need a perfect, sinless Savior. And he has been provided in the person of Jesus Christ, even to the point that we need to be willing to say, as Paul would, and if you reject him, it would be the most foolish thing you could do. To, to turn from Jesus Christ 
and the life that he wants to give you and the, the, the joy that he wants to provide for you and the forgiveness and the right standing before God. Don't, don't do that. Don't be a scoffer against the works of God. We must stand on his authority and point people to our Savior. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, you are the object of our desire. Even this morning as we have looked again at Paul proclaiming you to that that group of people in Antioch and, and bringing clarity to their understanding of this man that they may have heard of and didn't know fully what to believe about him. We, we see clearly in your word, Jesus, that you came and you gave yourself as a ransom for our sin. That the judgment and punishment that we deserve, you bore in your body on the cross that you might satisfy the wrath of God. And so as we are about to lift our voices in song again, we, we just want to declare your greatness and thank you and, and bless you by our worship. We also pray that your spirit would fill us and empower us with the knowledge of your word, that we would be committed to its authority in all of life, that we would be submitted to the authority of your truth, even when it bumps up against our feelings and our desires and how we would like things to be. Cause us to be a people who will yield to the authority of your word and to its truth. And then by your spirit, help us to point back to you. Help us to not take glory that is deserved by you alone, but rather to point people to who you are and how you have changed us and transformed us. Lord, if there's anyone listening this morning who, who is still wrestling with this person of Jesus Christ and this need of salvation, I pray that today your spirit would do the, the great work of opening their eyes, that they would see that their sin places this insurmountable obstacle between themselves and a holy God that can only be done away with by faith and trust fully in Jesus Christ and in his death and resurrection. Father, thank you for raising your son from the dead. Thank you for glorifying and exalting him to the throne. Thank you that we now can worship as a people who not only have been saved from the penalty that we deserve, but as a people who with great joy can anticipate being in your presence in worshiping you and thanking you for the salvation that you have bestowed on us. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.